Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Right to Read Initiative live podcast recording. My name is Dr. Catherine Garforth from Garforth Education. And today I have the pleasure of having Lynn Stone join me from Lifelong Literacy. She is an author of three books, the language, sorry, it's Spelling for Life, Reading for Life, and Language for Life. And today is the first of four of our conversations where we are looking at her journey. Welcome, Lynn. Thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm very excited. I've loved your other interviews and I'm, I'm really um, honored that you would uh, consider me to, to be part of that. Of course. Well, on our, you know, our journey to promote information about the right to read stemming from the Ontario Human Rights Commission's right to read public inquiry that happened in February of 2022, we got a lot of recommendations about the importance of making sure that there's that language component into reading instruction and the things that we can do to make it better. And you, I, I love your books. Um, and, and the way that you present things quite frankly, and I think that's definitely needed in our communication with classroom teachers because they only have so much time to dedicate to professional development outside of the classroom and outside of the requirements that they have for work. So yeah. anything that we can do in an efficient manner is excellent. So today the focus is speaking about your journey. Now let's go back to high school. <laughs> All the way back. You know, when you were in high school, what were you thinking for a career? Did you want to go this route or? Well, here's the thing, right? Um, in, in high school in my day, um, in the country that I was in, which was Scotland, um, there wasn't, we, we didn't do kind of career focused subjects we didn't do a lot of talking about careers mm -hmm. um obviously the children that wanted to be doctors and lawyers right they kind of needed to have a very early path but the rest of us weren't particularly um guided uh, or, or or focused on what we wanted to do when we were adults i mean everybody had their ambitions everybody had their leanings and and i must say my leaning always was language um I, you know, I, I know you want to start at high school, but I should probably mention that uh, my dad was a diplomat. And so I grew up around the world. So I was born in Singapore. And when we, uh, you know, when in the diplomatic service, you had nannies. And my nanny spoke to me in Mandarin. And then we moved to Poland. And my nanny spoke to me in Polish. And then we moved to Egypt. And my nanny spoke to me in Arabic. And I was immersed in the language and script and very, very different languages and scripts from birth. And I think that set my brain up right, a little bit differently in terms of taking to language with, with ease and being incredibly interested in language. So even prior to high school, I was like language, language, language. But also I was very, very lucky in that I just had the kind of brain that could learn to read. Some people have it, you know, no matter what, you could have given me balanced literacy and I would have learned to read, right? Okay. Because some people do. Not, not not the majority, but there's a minority and I'm in that minority. That's great. I can't park my car straight, but I learned to read really fast. So, you know, we have our strengths and weaknesses. So when I went to school, I was reading and writing 
already. So I didn't need to join in any of the, the, the lessons. Therefore, not being a disruptive, horrible person, right, but being a kind of, you know, compliant person, I helped my, um, my friends as well in my class. So I liked to teach from, the, from day one. Teaching, language, that was always, always, always in my head. So I was always going towards that. And I think that more than high school then put me on that path to linguistics. And when I studied linguistics, I also studied something called teaching English as a foreign language, which is what it was called back then. Um, so I incorporated teaching into linguistics and, you know, the rest is history. I was always on that path. <laughs> well, you know, some people are, I know I have a cousin that's one of those people that just absorbs language and, and her daughter is the same and learning a language seems like it's almost effortless to them. And, you know, the languages that you're talking about, like Arabic and Mandarin, they're very old, rich languages that have that history involved with them. And then you come to a language like English, that's a newer language that takes words from everywhere. And yeah. then our spellings <laughs> come from everywhere, too. It's not a strict, strict uh, way for, okay, you have to adapt to English spelling rules. Well, We'll borrow yours if it works for us. Yeah, although having said that, that system is, is still very elegant. It's very pattern based. It's, it's, it <laughs> is a system and therefore it has operating rules. And, and my, my contention is if, if they're taught well from the beginning by someone who knows how that works, you're going to take lots and lots of children along on that journey to being accurate, fast writers, which is the goal, yes. isn't it? It's like the goal of primary school at least speed and legibility of writing and and, uh, and accuracy of spelling and it's possible you can do that but teachers need to have the tools yeah and we need uh, a lot of teachers need that crash course uh, because growing up in a system that didn't foster it they were more concerned about inventive spelling uh, and and not really explaining why words were spelled that way they just were and you just had to memorize them well that's not going to help anyone I get a lot of people reporting to me because I train teachers and I, I get a lot of teachers saying it's the blind leading the blind. I feel like I'm the blind and I'm leading the blind, you know. Um, there's definitely a lot of room for improvement. I think, though, with reading, there has been quite a lot of very high quality for the last day. And that has been to do with grassroots movements worldwide, not governments, but grassroots movements pushing um, for a better deal for the, the you know, the, the, the children at the coalface. Um, so that's great. But we now really need to look at writing. We need to look at writing and spelling, I think, because they're part and parcel of that, um, that raising of capacity that's necessary for the largest amount of people to become literate. Well, and that's the thing. We can't divorce reading, spelling and writing from literacy. Mm. And yeah. it's more successful for students if we work on the three of them together from the start, because. <laughs> so yeah, absolutely. I agree. It's fine because it's helping them with their comprehension and helping with their understanding of how to decode the word when you understand the spelling patterns and giving them the method to the madness when it's not actually that mad. Not bad at all. It's elegant. It, it just, it, it just happens to be. Um, deep, you know, there's a depth to the system. And, uh, and all that all it takes is is for teachers to understand that depth system with which they can uh, that depth to others. It's not 
as you know, I I, I can't uh, I can't get by or I can't uh, support this kind of myth that English is kind of weird and uh, confounding and 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 uh, you know not not based on anything except strangeness. It's not true at all. It's not true. As Chomsky said, it was a um, an ideal vehicle to convey both sound and meaning, and I and I agree. I absolutely agree. Yeah. Well, and you see, uh, I'm sure you've read um, Mike's Mark Seidenberg's language at the speed of sight. Yeah. And in the beginning, he has that example. Well, well, first, we're going to change, we're going to reform the English writing system. And first, we're going to change all the uh, spellings of the k phoneme to the letter K. Yep. Then they add more and more, and then it gets increasingly complex. And, you know, for the first little bit, it works, but then it gets just, whoa, yeah, how's this going to work? Absolutely. And, you, you know, you have to remember that English is the lingua franca of the world. So it's the language of um, science and industry and diplomacy and so on. Therefore, there are a, there's a massive range, very, very diverse range of English speakers. Now, if we're going to reform spelling so that it's much more sound to symbol based, you know, more transparent, whose accent, whose accent are we going to write that in? You know, especially the vowels. Right. Um, everybody has their vowel system. Some people pronounce R after vowels and some people don't. Whose accent are we going to write it in? Because it's I tell you what, I'm Scottish and I, I'm not, I'm gonna, not going to be writing English in an English accent. You know what I mean? It's just very, very impractical. It's very impractical. Spelling reform is an impractical proposition. Um, and I don't think it's going to happen particularly significantly in our lifetime. Therefore, what we have to do is reform teaching of spelling. Yes. Um, and that's that's one of you know the main goals of my existence, I guess. Wonderful. Well, it's definitely appreciated. <laughs> so you finished high school. What was your next step? Well, I decided to take a little bit of time off, actually. Um, I, uh, I, I went to America uh, as a nanny. So I worked for a diplomatic family in uh, Washington, D.C. And uh, again, taught the little boy to read um, because you do or, <laughs> or I do. And I had the loveliest time. Beautiful family. Um, they still were still in touch. They came to the, the, the book launch of my first book, even, you know, uh, and now they have children of their own. Three, three, uh, the three children I looked after now have children of their own. And I feel kind of like a grandparent because <laughs> my, my children are a bit young yet. So it's kind of, it's, it's just really lovely. That was, I was so lucky. And I, I, you know, lived in DC and went to New York a lot and Philadelphia and, and had the loveliest time um, on the East Coast. Um, mm -hmm. Then I went back to London and uh, and, and worked uh, where my sister worked in a, in a company called uh, NCR, which is now AT&T. And I just did a kind of uh, a tech type job there and for another year. And then I went to university at the age of 20. Um, and I studied at university. University College London, uh, which has a beautiful linguistics department under some of the most fabulous, I was just really lucky, just fabulous linguists who were really kind and very, very, uh, very good at getting their, um, their, their teaching across. Uh, you know, Neil Smith, who wrote The Twitter Machine, is one of the, you know, the most interesting and, and well-known sort of professors of linguistics that you have. Dick Hudson, he taught me everything about grammar and, and is very much um, a mentor to me, still uh, Professor Emeritus, but still will write back to you and guide you in whatever you want. He's amazing. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I was just I, I was just really lucky to, to be there, got my degree and then 
zipped off to Australia as you do. Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, and I, that linguistic portion, I actually fell into some linguistics courses uh, myself at university. I, my first degree was a degree in computer science. And at the time I went to start my, uh, or enroll in a teacher education program, computer science wasn't a teachable subject. So I had to take additional courses Mm -hmm. and I was taught to read using an Orton-Gillingham approach as someone who's severely dyslexic. And I took some introductory linguistics courses where it looked at phonology and it just blew my mind away. I'm like, why didn't? My teachers know this from the start and understanding the language and the articulatory gestures. I'm not saying that we need every student to understand their articulatory gestures, but there are some that need to know those differences. Yeah. And I think it's the intellectual property of teachers to actually have that basic linguistic understanding across all of the disciplines uh, mm-hmm. in linguistics. I, I don't see harm and I see actually a lot of good uh, come coming out of it. There is a book called uh, Linguistics in Schools by Denham and Lobeck, uh, which I recommend. Um, and it's, it's two authors who um, have uh, some case studies uh, about linguistics in schools, <laughs> believe it or not. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's a really, really good argument for having teachers understand a little bit more about the structure of language. Yeah, and I'm having that, under, I mean, it's the same thing when teachers go to teach math. If you don't really understand it and you fudge your way through it based on the resources that you have that weren't really designed for you or that situation, you're not going to do the greatest job. And it's no fault to you if your training didn't provide you with the solid foundation you needed. Absolutely. But Twinkle is not the place. (laughs) It's not the Twinkle and teachers pay teachers, unfortunately, not the place for that. Um, And it's a shame teachers are are under-equipped. Um, you know, which is very stressful for them as well. Yeah. So you got to Australia, you walk yeah. off the plane. What did you do? <laughs> well, um, my dad was working here. So, you know, it's, <laughs> my dad's just paved the way to all sorts of uh, fabulous um, uh, uh, adventures. But, uh, and I didn't mean to stay in Australia. I loved London. London was great. London was my favorite place. It was an extraordinary place to be. Um, in the uh, in the in the mid nineties, and uh, I was just sort of visiting dad, mm-hmm. um, and and uh, but I had a big big long visa, you know, diplomat and all that sort of thing. So I I I, I dagged around, as they say in in, in Australia, and uh, and I met this terrific guy, <laughs> as you do, and um, big, you know, just the archetypal big Australian blonde, you know, sailor sailor type, you know. Um, and uh, I thought, oh, I might stick around. And so I moved to Sydney and, and looked for a job. And the first job I got was at Linda Mood Bell Learning Processes in Bondi Junction. So they had come over mm-hmm. and, uh, and they were recruiting. And I, um, with my linguistics degree, you know, they were like, oh, that's attractive. Come here. <laughs> because they didn't have to do a lot of training in articulatory gestures because I majored in phonetics and phonology. Oh, and I do actually want to say right here, right now. It was a bachelor's degree that I got. I didn't go on to do a master's and I haven't gone on to do a PhD. I am a bachelor of arts. That's it. That was my degree. Um, But uh, with Linda Mood Bell, everything that I learned in terms of phonetics and phonology, just it just matched like that. 
And so I could apply my linguistic degree straight away and I could do the thing I liked, which is interacting with children, which I really, really always enjoyed. Um, so that was great, but uh, but then they they left. <laughs> Sometimes Linda McBell come back and forth like this to Australia, um, bless their hearts. Um, and so I had to look for another job and armed with the things that I had, the, the, the qualifications I now had and the experience I now had, because I don't know if you know about Linda McBell clinics, but it is like, intense like you've got six students bang, bang 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 five days a week you know you're just going over and over this material and you're watching these students you know um get better and better it was such a good training for me anyway um so i went to a speech pathology clinic and said well i'm i've got a linguistics degree and i'm lindemood lips trained as well as all the other programs and they went certainly <laughs> come in yeah. <laughs> So then, yeah, so then I worked for a speech pathologist for a while and then, you know, um, moved down to Melbourne, started a family and went into private practice. That's it. Yeah, well, I think it's a big thing or something that I want to address is working for a speech and language pathologist. You're seeing these kids in their infancy, preschool years and seeing those warning signs, those red lights that this kid really doesn't understand the sounds of language. And you know what? This is the best time that we can address that. Yeah. Catch up. That's definitely what the speech, it was speech pathologists and educational psychologists. I was the only linguist uh, mm -hmm. in the building and therefore the preschoolers were well covered by my colleagues. So my direct experience was with mm -hmm. children and adults who had somehow not managed to come to grips with the writing system. And do you know what the funny thing is, Catherine? Funny thing is, because my training was, you know, sort of um, uh, highly uh, well thought out and, and um, you know, the pro I, I learned Spalding as well. Mm -hmm. So the programs were, were you know, Spalding's classic OG, um, Orson Gilliam, uh, the Linda Mood Lips program, you know, very, very rigorous and, and, and well put together. Um, and my linguistics degree, it was, I had never seen any other approach to teaching literacy. I had just seen systematic synthetic phonics, right? Um, you know, uh, uh, explicit handwriting, uh, the structure of words, um, you know, sound it out to make sure you go through all the way through the word, all that. I, it was all, it was, it was just um, kind of, I, I just thought that was normal. I thought that's what everyone did. And it wasn't until I started working with, um, slightly older populations where I realized that these kids were being taught other things like weird other things and I, I, I wasn't aware that there could be a different approach because we were so successful with what we did it was just a no-brainer that a kid would end up reading of course of course um, there was no built-in well you know 20 percent of them might not because hey poverty or um, you know, uh, other brain or they don't get much support at home. There was none of that. It was, they're going to read and we know how. Mm -hmm. So it, I suddenly became aware of this kind of, do other people, do people tell them to guess? What? What? Do people tell them to look at a picture? Why would you do that? And I started getting really interested in this thing. And then I realized there's this thing called the reading wars because mm. I'd never seen it in my career. It was just an absolutely weird to think that somebody could could possibly say these things to children and think that they're going to pick up reading um and that's when I became really interested in reading recovery I kept hearing reading recovery reading recovery this kid's had three years of reading recovery and I'm like 
well, what are they doing here? Why are they in front of me then? What's the recovery part? Um, <laughs> you know, and that's uh, that's when it started to get really, really interesting. It's when I started to write the books as well, just to, so I could discover what the heck is going on? Why would somebody, why, why? why? And, and that's a rabbit hole, as you know, right? Yeah. A huge rabbit hole. So yeah, it's um, it's been very, very interesting. So did you start your private practice before you started writing the books? I, well, it depends on what you mean by starting writing the books, because even with Linda Mood and Spalding, right, yeah. there were gaps in what the children that I worked with needed to know in mm-hmm. terms of in terms of spelling and in terms of syntax. Right. They needed to know parts of speech to get onto morphology. You can't do morphology in the absence of having a working understanding of what words do with one another in the first place, right? So there was nothing, there was no training that I'd had that, um, you know, that covered that. And the spelling component of both of those programs was okay at a kind of transparent level, but definitely not at an etymological or at a morphemic level. So I had to start writing that stuff myself. And over and over again, that was the stuff I kept having to say to students and my colleagues would notice and go, can you tell me about that? And that then became the programs, spelling mm-hmm. for life, language for life, right? Um, and then that became formalized. So I started doing that from the beginning, mm-hmm. but I got a book deal, if you like, in 2011. So, you know, for 10 years, I'd been writing versions of this stuff so mm-hmm. that I could um, train teachers in it and train my colleagues in it but also so I could reach the kids um, that I needed to reach that my training hadn't prepared me for. Of course. So what did your private practice look like when it began and what has it evolved to now? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's a, that's a great question. I love that. I've never, I've never thought about that before. Um, well, at first it was just me trying to, uh, because I was raising a family as well. Uh, it was me just um, making sure I kept my hand in, in terms of practice. So I was used to very, very intensive, you know, practice, uh, but raising a family, you know, you have a little bit less time on your hands. So uh, it was one-on-one me with, uh, with, with various clients that I just advertised for and, and word of mouth always just, just flowed students towards me. Um, when I moved to Melbourne, I was at the dyslexia, something called the Dyslexia Assessment and Education Centre, and they gave me students as well. And I built up a client base that way. So it was just me one-on-one. Then I moved to the country, you know, had that I had that tree change and we moved from the city to the country and I set up a little practice there and it soon became I was basically the only tutor in that town Um, and that town had some pretty you know lovely schools but very very low quality training for the teachers as well and 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 so therefore lots of children needing intervention nobody doing intervention except me so then this big caseload starts and I think oh I need someone else so then I trained another person and that's, you know, that's just been the, the way, the way that it's gone. Now I have, uh, gosh, I have a center here in, um, uh, in Mornington, which is outside of Melbourne. And I have a branch within Melbourne. I have two specialist Zoom tutors that are based interstate in different states. Um, and I have about six practitioners that work for me as well. And now I don't do any one-to-one student stuff because I'm so busy training teachers Mm -hmm. Uh, but I do do group sessions because I've become enormously interested in explicit instruction really interested in that I've had a lot of really um, wonderful experiences with 
I'm, I'm EDI trained, and um, but but Lorraine Hammond, and, and I think you may or may not be speaking to her at some point. She's definitely going to be over at the Reading League. Um, but she is very, very big on explicit instruction here and spoke for me uh, at a masterclass series that I did. And I thought, well, I need to put my money where my mouth is. I need to actually get some experience in explicit instruction. And so I organized some groups and now I work with groups of children so that I can practice mm -hmm. explicit instruction because that is, that's not just icing on cake. That is, that's the cake, right? <laughs> that approach, um, that planning, the participation and checking for understanding and, and review um, is so, so important. And I was doing it kind of via instinct before, but now I'm applying this kind of this technology um, to it. And it's been, it's been wonderful. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's how it looks now. Wonderful. And then how did the professional development for teachers begin to develop? It, just through people going, can you show me how you did that? <laughs> right? You know, just, and as you know, Catherine, 75% of this job is experience, right? You've got to get in front of those kids and do your work. Um, there is so much that you learn just from that day in, day out, meeting different children and working with them. And so, I, I you know, I just had all that experience because Linda moved bell, whoosh, you know, and then <laughs> speech pathology clinic, you've just got so many clients that you're just working full time in front of kids. So you get all this experience and then, and, then I get, you know, and then I have, I had success. And so people would go, oh, well, can I have a bit of that? And I go, all right, I'll see what I can do. I'll turn that into a, a handout or, or whatever. Um, and then again, you know, uh, schools in the local area would go, we like what you're doing with that kid. Do you think you could work with our intervention staff and show them? And then it would sort of bleed out from the intervention staff to the rest of the staff and they'd go, oh, can you show us? And then that became more and more sort of formalized until you know, I, I, I just have so many uh, wonderful, lovely schools reaching out and saying, right, get here. <laughs> we need to do we need to do a session um, on all of the stuff that, that, that you do. I'm very I'm so fortunate. I'm so lucky. None of this was ever really planned out. Um, I'm, I'm dreadful at planning. I have awful detail like that. I just do not see details at all. Um, None of it was ever planned. It was just all very, very, very lucky. And, and I'm hugely fortunate to be doing what I'm doing. Well, the right place at the right time with the right knowledge, right? Always, yeah. Strange, but there you go. <laughs> so what did you learn in, in the book writing process when you were writing these books? Like your, your chapters are very to the point <laughs> and they're not going for the flowers. I remember... Uh, in university writing some paper and you know uh, in my undergrad they were looking for you know these you know nice beautiful language whatever and then when my first uh, grad courses <laughs> the teacher actually drew flowers on the paper okay <laughs> just flowers I don't want to hear that in this oh right okay that's um that's that's interesting feedback <laughs> yeah. yeah so flowery flowery language is that what you're talking about well, and, you know, putting in more than that is needed, ah, right? Okay. So, I mean, you even see these, I, the other day I saw an ad for some sort of course on an app or a website where it's telling you how to write. So you're taking out the words that you don't really need. 
Mm, okay. Um, well, look, there's 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 uh, there's Grice's maxims or the the, the cooperative principle um, within linguistics that says if you're going to communicate with someone, you need to be clear, truthful, to the point, brief. Um, you know, all of those things. That's that's a good way to write. Um, mm. I guess maybe that within my linguistics studies was um, embedded in me, but mostly, Catherine, I write because I um, I need to figure stuff out. And, and I, that helps me think. So it's a way of, of, of me thinking. So I'll have an idea and uh, and I'll, I'll start to write to it and I'll start to write about it. And amazingly enough, that beca that becomes books. Again, really lucky, really lucky that my publisher was looking for a title. When I had a spelling title that year, they could have been looking for something else that I didn't have. I just happened to, again, be on their wavelength when they were looking for a spelling title and I had one. So I got my first book published. And once you get your first book published and it sells okay and people like it and it's not terribly written and you're not a massive prima donna, right? Mm -hmm. It'll give you another book deal. And so that's how that's that's how you, you get published. So I was, I was very, very lucky, but I write for myself. Mm -hmm. I write so that I can figure stuff out. And so I had to write about spelling and get it into a systematic, format and then I had to write about grammar and then I had to write about the reading wars and now I have to write about writing and my method if you're if you're really interested every single book um starts off as um a uh, in a notebook yeah and I use um I use a fountain pen yeah um, and I have um chapters all mapped out um you know and that that I write it by hand first. Not only that, how nerdy is this? Can I share my nerd moment with you? Oh, of course. I'd love to see that. <laughs> so I have different um colors of ink and different yes. lines. I note them and the date, right? In my notebooks. <laughs> but so I have this beautiful Mont Blanc fountain pen mm -hmm. that my sister gave me. Um, but then I discovered this ink called Twisby Black, right? And I have a whole wall of ink, like every color, sparkly ink, you know, I was a massive collector. And then I found this. And have you ever been to, um, you know, Lint chocolate? Yes. Right, have you ever been to a Lint cafe and had a hot chocolate there? No. It's sort of melted milky Lint, right? Mm -hmm. Now, if you've had a hot chocolate, yeah, it's quite a nice experience mm -hmm. until you have, I don't know if I can go back to the chocolate now because that is insanely good. So it is with Twisby Black, right? I just can't write with anything else now. It's that good. <laughs> I don't have shares in this or anything, but, <laughs> but that's my method anyway. So I write it all by hand and then it becomes a book. And through that hand, um, I can think it all out and it comes out basically complete. Yeah. Um, then we go, then I type it up and that gives me some refinement. And then, you know, we, we go through the, the publishing process. So this, next one yeah. will be coming out probably this time next year but I'm, I'm actually working on the second edition of language for life I need to change some things in there to reflect my updated thinking as you do That's yes of course there. well and something that I wanted to bring up so this is your spelling for life it the is, first yes. book that you wrote yep. and I want to highlight so the first chapter is on orthographic mapping and it is five pages Orthographic mapping is an incredibly complex process, but it's simple at the same time. And explaining it clearly is essential so that teachers understand the point of teaching. 
and why they're teaching reading in a certain way to help facilitate orthographic mapping. But it can take time to kind of let the information that you understand from all the research papers and the cognitive scientists to percolate down into that clear, filtered understanding that doesn't have all those grainy bits in. So it's smooth, it's written smoothly in flows. And, you know, a reader can just be like, oh, well, that's easy to understand. Thank you. <laughs> I certainly hope so. I mean, I say I write for myself, but I do hope that other people know what I'm talking about when I <laughs> when I do put pen to paper. But yeah, Catherine, orthographic mapping, it's kind of, again, intellectual property of teachers. Teachers mm -hmm. should know this stuff. Um, I think Teacher 101, it, it's why we study words. Uh, it's the process by which we put words into long-term memory. So you should know that, right? That will help you become a discerning consumer of whatever is out there. And you have, you, I mean, you know that education is littered with snake oil. It's littered with low quality, quick buck, mm -hmm. you know, uh, fixies and so on. Understanding orthographic mapping just raises you as an educator just above the fray slightly because you understand that that process. And we, we have Linnea Airy to thank for that, Professor Linnea Airy, um, and, and all of the, the, the people that came after that, that bridged that gap between her research and an education. So massively important. Yeah, well, and I think uh, Dr. Carolyn Storm, Strom has done an amazing job with her reading in the classroom presentation of making it visual yep. for teachers to understand how it works. And you know, the sad thing is, so I've been consulting uh, families and working with students for years now. And over time, I've spoken to teachers at various different stages in their career. And I bring up orthographic mapping. And it doesn't matter where the teacher is two years at a teacher college or have been, has been doing it for 40 years. They're not sure what I'm talking about. Yeah. I mean, understandably, it hasn't been around for 40 years. Well, it has been, but conceptually coined yeah it wasn't coined and but you know our teachers that are just coming out of their teacher education programs and certified need to understand orthographic mapping yeah. and what it means for reading instruction so can you take a, a moment and give us the elevator orthographic mapping speech I'm glad you said elevator because that's one of the things I do, as you probably know, um, when I when I train teachers, we do a little survey and I say, OK, so uh, if you got into an elevator and uh, somebody said to you, what's orthographic mapping? By the time you got to the top floor, uh, if you would be able to explain to a layperson what that is so that they had a basic conceptual understanding of that, you're a 10. And if you've only just heard the phrase now, you're a one. And then so I can't, you know, Dan, are you a 10, nine? And I see how the room is set up, how many are, you know, sort of um, tens. Nobody ever puts their hand up for 10. People are so modest, but there's plenty of tens out there. And what I get a lot of the time or what, what I got, I don't know, in the last couple of years was sort of three to one. That, that was that was the majority. I'm now seeing fives, which is really nice. Seeing a lot of eights. It was really nice as well. You know, then we do this thing on orthographic mapping and we start with the bulletproof definition. Orthographic mapping is the process by which people place words into long-term memory. It's a process. It's a process. It's not something you can teach. It is a thing which happens. It's like you can't teach memory 
right? You have memory, memory happens, mm-hmm. yeah? And memory, and, and it's very linked to memory. Memory can be placing, placing things into memory, retrieving things from memory can be efficient or they can be inefficient. And so there are efficient ways to place words into long-term memory that will then transfer to novel words. That's what we want, right? Mm-hmm. We want children to get into that area where they can self-teach. And Linnea Aries' work is a lot about um, how children go from recognizing words to this spot called self-teaching. And that, that's where it ties in with David Sher's self-teaching hypothesis, right? So, um, and I'd look this up, uh, this, this is great stuff to read, by the way, everyone, right? So orthographic mapping is, is that's happened. You have orthographically mapped a word when you can instantly and effortlessly recognize it without resorting to anything else, right? You know, like um, sounding it out or heaven forbid, looking at a picture or, you know, guessing at a word, yeah? When you can instantly and effortlessly recognize that, what's happened is that word has gone into your long-term memory and it's very, very difficult to shut that off, right? So, and the process you did that with was mapping graphemes to phonemes, sometimes mapping those graphemes to other mnemonic devices. Mnemonic means to do with memory, right? So M-N-E is the N part. We get it in amnesia as well, right? So it's the memory part. So you can do that through other mnemonics like morphemes, like um, uh, orthographic expectancies, such as E at the end of a word, you know, it may have an effect on a preceding letter. Um, you don't start words with CK. These are all orthographic things that we, that, that there are mnemonics that help us to place words into long-term memory. And we get a bigger and bigger understanding of that. And they've got, and that's called schemas, right? How, they, how the system operates um, as we go through uh, more and more encounters with print. Now, again, you can impede that or you can enhance that. You can put rocket fuel into that, or you can put fences, walls, barriers, right? So, but when there's a word in your long-term memory that you can instantly and effortlessly recognize, and hopefully, if you're given the right tools, retrieve so that you can spell that sequence of letters increasingly automatically, you've orthographically mapped the word. That's the goal, right? And like I say, It's not like at the beginning of every day you go to the kids in class, right, we're doing orthographic mapping now. That's, it's not a subject you can teach. It's a process that takes place. It's remembering. And we remember through these devices, graphing, phonemes, but also other mnemonics to do with the structure of words. The way we impede it is if we cue children to take their eyes off words, right? If we say, look away, and sometimes in my training, we play look away bingo, where we look at certain prompts for reading and um, you know, you place a counter every time that prompt will encourage a child to take their eyes off the sequence of letters. And it's the sequence that, you know, that, that, that's really important here. Um, so we play bingo with that. So things like, look at the picture, what would make sense here? As soon as you say to someone, what would make sense? You know, can you think of, they'll take their eyes away from the page and go, what is it? That's how we, that's how we retrieve um, you know, sort of concepts in our mind. So you're, I do lots of exercises on which one is, is going to be efficient and which one's going to be inefficient. And the efficiency um, is through looking at the sequence, the unique sequence of letters in a word that makes it that word, mm-hmm. right? That really underpins everything, as does phonological awareness. So again, these are Aries findings. Mm-hmm. Phonological awareness underpins this and children who have good understanding of grapheme phoneme correspondences, they're the ones 
that become really efficient. If you take care of their ability to perceive sounds in words and manipulate sounds in words, you're going to take care of orthographic mapping as well. Um, you know, so there are certain functions that underpin that. That's it, that's orthographic mapping. That wasn't an elevator pitch though. We've been up and down about six times now, haven't we? Because I, I, went, I went slow on that, but the main point- You had one of those kids in the elevator that presses all the buttons. <laughs> ah. <laughs> all right, yeah. So if we had one of those, then yeah, we're now at the top floor. I hope you're somewhat less um, in the dark, not you, you know all about it, but uh, you know, in the dark about orthographic mapping. Yeah. and. Once we understand orthographic mapping, it just expands the horizon of, okay, well, how do I teach it? And that's yeah. definitely something that you and I are gonna get into more detail in the upcoming episodes. But one of the things, and I don't, I haven't been to Australia and I don't know what the bookstores have there and the publishers are producing, but one of the things that is inhibiting our children's ability to orthographic map is the text we are putting in front of them. Um, and, you know, there's so many beginner reading books that instead of having words, they have pictures. Yeah. And they don't even have the word at all. Yep. Maybe at the beginning as a, a legend for the adult to understand what the picture is supposed to represent. And you hope that the kids get it. That's not helping yeah. teaching reading in the slightest. Of course not. Yeah, as, and then, as, as there are lots of things, you know, there are lots of myths and legends out there about what teaches reading um, and, it, and it's not being read to. You, you can facilitate all of this, but until a child's actually engaging with print in the manner that a good reader engages with print, and that means looking at every letter in the sequence of letters in a word, right? Mm -hmm. Until you do that, until the child's engaging with print, what you're teaching is oral language. Mm -hmm. And that's great you know, oral language and vocabulary, these are pillars of reading as well, but you've got to get into the print at some point and you need to face that. And, you know, again, I'm being direct, aren't I? <laughs> this, is, this is the language that you talk about, but, you know, you've got to engage with print quickly. Um, and if you do that systematically on a, you know, simple to complex um, scope and sequence, you're gonna bring more children along and it's, and, that's, that's what we're doing. We're, 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 we're increasing the chances of children, no matter their background, no matter of what's going on at home or, um, you know, the neighborhood that they live in, we're increasing their chances of being literate as well. It's a very, very serious pursuit. We don't have time for fluff. You no, know, <laughs> remove those flowers from instruction, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Have a, like a pop up in the, the screen of the classroom. Okay, this is a flower. Let's get rid of it. Yeah. But Teachers need knowledge to get there. This isn't something that you can learn overnight. And that's why it's important for educators to have access to quality professional development that isn't basket weaving, that's going to help improve their students' instruction so yeah. that we're getting a minimum of 95% of students reading with tier one instruction. So mm -hmm. those at you know the classroom level construction we're getting 95 percent of those kids it can be done it has been done across the world in many settings with different classroom makeups and different children and you know what even with nonverbal students yeah. who are sorry, not nonverbal or non-speaking so if they can comprehend language they can still learn how to read with their peers Absolutely. with that appropriate instruction and i think that's important to highlight we shouldn't just toss them aside because they aren't speaking to us. 
It doesn't mean they don't understand what we're saying. Oh, absolutely. Look, I have a lot of um, experience in the disability sector. I, I had a very um, uh, severely uh, disabled child um, as well and, and, and raised her until she passed away at, at 16. Um, but uh, so I, I have a lot of experience of that sort of thing of, of how expressive language is not necessarily only a proxy for um, receptive language. So she understood lots more than she could say. Uh, you magnify that and, um, and uh, you know, there are, there are lots of children missing out on, on the, uh, the right to literacy because mm -hmm. they, 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 you know, they're deemed unable to do that. Now, they, are, they would be unable to do that in an inefficient system. Yes. So if you don't have the tools, if what you're teaching is low quality, and by low quality, I mean, you know, whole language and balanced literacy. If those are your tools, um, then yeah, children with intellectual disabilities um, or, or with language disorders will miss out, which is a shame because they don't have to. You can teach just about anyone to read. Um, you know, so I'm very, very, very strong on that. And obviously, you know, right to read initiative. I mean, goodness, it's, it's a human right um, in, a, in, a, in a complex modern society for, um, at least 95% of the population to be literate. And so we've got a lot of work to do. Mm -hmm. And that work isn't just about professional development. I mean, obviously I, I provide professional development, but I, uh, you know, as you are doing and, and, and people like you worldwide are trying to get done is initial teacher education has to change. Mm -hmm. And right now it's an incredibly progressivist, in, uh, constructivist, approach and it's it's just it's not fit for purpose so we have to change that at the academic level and that is a huge ask that is a very very long road because people have tenure and if you are yeah, yeah so if you're if you're there in that job there is no way you're going to say do you know I was wrong about that that you can't do that you can't do that you have to leave the profession and you're not going to do that so therefore there these institutes are turning out churning out thousands of teachers worldwide who have no idea about the science of reading um, because jobs, job protection at the academic level is more important than the life chances of millions of children. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? Mm. Horrible, <laughs> horrible. People like Pamela Snow though, people like Lorraine Hammond mm -hmm. um, here in Australia. So I can talk about them because I live here. Um, you know, so I, I'm, I'm across what they're doing. They are changing things at the academic level, but my goodness, I think they speak for most academics in education who are in the minority in terms of approaches to reading. They're the science of reading people, they're in the minority, and they do sometimes suffer from a little bit of um, professional, well, they, they it, it, people attempt to damp them down and damp their message down because it doesn't look good for the faculty. Um, that's well, and they get pushed out. Yeah. You see people getting pushed up and not allowed in because they don't agree. I um, mean, you know, you can't do that with Pam and Lorraine. They're, they're being, oh, yes. You know, but um, it's quite stressful and, and, um, and very disappointing. Definitely. Now, one thing I definitely wanted to hit on your journey was high frequency words and how we teach them based on your experience over the years across continents across countries, what have you seen about teaching high frequency words 
And how do you advise we work on those? Well, I, I, I want to start with myths and facts. Yes. I want to start with myths and facts because, again, that, that gives us a why. Um, and it, and it then helps us to be a little bit more discerning about what, how we're selecting um, our resources. So high frequency words, um, irregular words and sight words are three different things. There is definitely some overlap, but I think starting with definitions of those is really, really important. So of course, um, I, think, I think we'll start with sight words. Do you mind if we start with that? I love that one that needs, oh. <laughs> when people talk about sight words inappropriately. One yeah. of my peppies. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, here's the thing. Sight words are incredibly attractive, right? Because what we want um, is, is for every word to become a sight word. So if you think of like a cloud, okay, like, well, we'll bring this into the physical universe, right? So a kid has an oral lexicon. They have a vocabulary and that's the pantry. That's the store cupboard of words that they have. And they come to school loaded with that, right? And primary school's job, one of the jobs, of primary school, primary teaching, is to get that oral lexicon matched to their orthographic lexicon so that they can read and spell these words and the other words that they're learning through their day-to-day -day, um, lives at school and, and, and in the world as well. So we wanna pour this oral lexicon into the orthographic lexicon. And you do that by showing them how the writing system works. So what we've got is words you can use and over here, sight words right? Words that you can recognize effortlessly. We want to bring that over like that, right? And increase that. Um, that's what, so what a sight word is, is a word that you can do that with. And therefore, sight words are in the eye of the beholder. They're in the mind of the beholder. You can't hold up a word to someone and go, this is a sight word, unless they recognize that word. It's not a sight word until you've learned it. So everyone's got their own sight word vocabulary. It's what you know. It's the words in your memory. That's your sight word vocabulary, not words that exist out here. So there, I see lessons where people go, right, we're doing sight words. Well, we're not. We're not. <laughs> we're, you're, they're not sight words until they're in your student's memory. And it's your job to convert them into sight words. You can do that efficiently or you can do it inefficiently. So that's that's the first thing. A sight word is a word. The way that researchers talk about it is it's a word that you can instantly and effortlessly recognize without resorting to sounding out picture cues any of the other things it's just boom the words in there right that's a sight word it can be anything regular or irregular doesn't matter whether it's regular or irregular which brings us on to the second category second category is irregular words now if you're teaching a phonics scope and sequence and i recommend you do systematic synthetic phonics where children are taught to blend uh, graphemes together attach phonemes to them blend them together and form words that they may have in their oral lexicon that's synthetic that's the synthetic part if you have a system you know going to teach this first and then that and then this that's a scope and sequence and i'll know i'm finished when we reach this bit um that's systematic synthetic phonics so say you're somewhere on that continuum right as a teacher uh you may come across words or children may come across words in their lives and in the print that they're engaging with that haven't been explicitly taught through that system yet or that haven't been um that that actually don't uh follow those same patterns that your system's teaching, you know, like the word was. <laughs> so if you've got us, you know, if you're teaching, you know, W says, A says, S says, was kind of violates that, okay? That you can call that an irregular word. 
but it's only a regular until you go, well, what's happening here is the W is affecting the A and you get that a lot. Look at wash, want, wand, wander, even squash, right? Words tend to do that to A. Now you've explained that. And also um, the letter S has a noisy sound as well. So S is the quiet sound, Z is the noisy sound. And if there's a noisy vowel before an S in words, sometimes that noise will carry on. You just go Z, W, A, S, was. That's that word. It's not a regular anymore, is it? Because you've just explained it. So in my view, there aren't any irregular words, really. There are words that don't have default grapheme phoneme matches. But if you take the time to explain that within a family of other words that do that, you're laughing, right? So, so then, so again, irregularity is only as irregular as what you've explained. So that's, again, your intellectual property as a teacher. You need to know how to explain that. Well, sorry. sorry. (laughs) One of the things that I love that you spoke about there, but not directly, is the impact that co-articulation has on the pronunciation of words. And that's where you're talking about, I mean, I, you know, they have the R colored vowel or, um, and I, I wrote a post about how uh, phonemes are like, something like phoneme pronunciation are like the colors of a rainbow. And that's where the colors beside it will impact your interpretation of the color. So you can have blue beside white, even though it's the same blue, it'll look different if it's beside green or black. And it's the same thing with our phonemes. Yeah. I love that analogy. Um, You know, further to that, though, the way you say the word is not the stable part of the word. It's not the stable form, right? You and I are speaking in different accents. We we say things differently. Um, Mm -hmm. That's unstable. So so when I see on uh, social media teachers going, how do you say this word? My answer is, it doesn't matter. How you spell the word is much more important, right? And it's really stable and you need to teach that, not how you say that word. You can't crowdsource other people's accents and think that you can then take that into the classroom. Forget about it. That's not the important part, right? It's not the important part. The important part is this the system that underlies it and that is stable. That's very stable and it's therefore really teachable as well right it's really teachable um you know so so we've got sight words um irregular words but onto your question about high frequency words then sometimes we have words that um, are irregular because that's where you are in your scope and sequence um but very very common and how do you deal with those is that is that something that you're looking at here Mm -hmm. yeah how you deal with them is that you have a system that will explain that as well, that you're confident about it, that you're well-trained about that, that you're not shy about that, and that you never ever resort to, ah, because English, uh, right? (laughs) Because that's not what, that's not real. That it's actually incredibly systematic. Um, So so yes, it's great to teach high frequency words um, and, and high frequency irregular when there's overlap like that. All you gotta do is explain that, put it into a family, that other words, you know, where, where other that, that irregularity occurs and then practice it and practice is the often neglected part. You've got to plan for the review. You've got to make sure that you revisit that in a timely manner and your students revisit that and then up the track, you check that again. So too often I see here's your high frequency word list or here's your irregular word list or heaven forbid your sight word list this week. That's done. I take that. Now let's get on with our lives right? <laughs> instead of. I'm going to quiz you, you know, this term, 
next term, the end of the year, you're going to get a quiz on this. Um, so like I say, we've got, we've got a, lot of, a lot of work to do. Well, and it's not just sending home that word list mm-hmm. at the beginning of the year saying, this is your job, parents. Teach yeah. these words. And I'm going to do a spelling test. Uh, and it's, it's your expectation to know it, right? Anything, any system, any, any kind of uh, teaching that is predicated somehow, somewhat on what happens at home is a system that will leave out, that will exclude an unacceptably high number of children. There are children who do not have that support. It's your job, teacher. It's your job, not the family's job. You can't complain about what's going on at home because you can't control that. The only thing that you can control is the quality of instruction that you give to the children and everything else is beyond your control. But the good thing is you can make that quality so high that you reach that 95% like that. That's that's basically my contention. Um, Catherine. Yes. I have an appointment. Yes, I was just going to. And so to... sure, it's not yes. it's like nearly 10 o'clock in the morning here in Australia. And I've got to go get women B12 shots. So I'm just letting you know we may have to wind up. Of course. Well, that's what I was just going to do, saying thank you so much for joining me today. I've loved our conversation. We definitely have the same approach and same understanding to teaching. I can't wait for our upcoming conversations. Next week, we are going to be looking at your thoughts about reading. Then on Tuesday, September 6th, we're going to learn your thoughts about spelling and oh did I skip one and then we have on September 13th your thoughts about writing and I think it was just going to give that deeper dive and understanding and how teachers can learn more so they get this explicit instruction and own personal understanding of these concepts we've been speaking about today thank you so much my great pleasure it's going to be an honor thanks again Catherine